are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science, and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is the Spiritual Care Coordinator and Endowed Chair of Pastoral Care at Langdonall Medical Center, which is located just outside of Philadelphia. She studied both biology and Bible during her undergrad and has seemingly found the perfect combination of both in her work. So I want to welcome to the podcast today, the Reverend Casey Bienname. Thank you, Zach. I'm thrilled to be here with you virtually. I should also mention that in in addition to being uh, brilliant and compassionate and just an all-around good person, she's also my son's godmother, so I am a little biased. <laughs> just a tad. It's okay. But but don't think I'm going to let you off the hook with this. We're going to do some uh, some really tough questions here. No softballs. I expect nothing, nothing less. <laughs> so, Casey... Um, you are not only the spiritual care uh, coordinator uh, at Lankanal, but you started the program, right? Yes, yeah, sort of restarted it. There, um, there had been chaplaincy in Lankanal's history, uh, but they had been sort of between chaplains for about six years before I got there. So uh, there had been nurses and doctors who had stepped up and brought in community clergy, but you know, I got to create a, a new foundation for us to have more regular and uh, more professional spiritual care uh, in, a, in a chaplaincy sense. How did, what does that process look like, like creating a chaplaincy program? It, they, they did a great job. They, uh, they did sort of a slow rollout where they let me secretly be there for a little while uh, so I could get the lay of the land. Uh, I think having a lot of friends who are chaplains, each hospital has its own culture and own expectation. There's different religious groups that surround uh, a hospital and so different needs would arise. And so it started by just me getting to know the staff, get to know the patient population, what kind of uh, medical issues come through our doors, and then getting to know the local clergy and religious groups to see who do I have to support me in this work. Because uh, I do a lot of interfaith, multi-faith work. I, uh, I can step in and help read a prayer, bring a sacred text for a person's you know, preferred religious, religious tradition. But uh, sometimes you know, it's, it's good to have your own clergy. It's good to have somebody of your tradition. And so I wanted to have all those individuals with me uh, kind of buying into this work. So yeah, they, after about a month of sort of more covertly being being present and learning, then I got to really assemble a team and build the resources that we we have now. And it's you know five years later, we're still building and still growing uh, and adapting to what the neighborhood needs. Assembling a team of fellow chaplains or a fellow Both. clergy. Yeah, so we have five per diems. Uh, we have a clinical pastoral educator, so somebody who trains uh, CPE students. Uh, and then we also have local clergy and volunteers. Uh, volunteers have stopped during the pandemic, uh, but we still have uh, everybody else on board and working in a variety of ways, whether in person or virtually. 
So you mentioned the CPE mm-hmm. program. That's another thing that started while you were there, though you didn't did start that, no. right? No. Um, for those who are not, who haven't been through seminary or are not ordained ministers, probably don't understand what all goes into clinical pastoral education. Yeah, um, can you? Yeah, can you give us a little bit of uh, insight into what that process is like and how that fits into the practice of, of ministry? I think I am super biased because I have 12 units of CPE, but uh, I, I love it. Uh, it is, so many people start CPE because they have to, because it's required of their, their seminary or religious training. It is meant mm-hmm. to be uh, a space. I hated it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, it is meant to be a space of discernment. I think that's the, the, that's how I would describe the the foundation of it. Uh, you, you go in and you're doing about a semester's long, uh, study of chaplaincy. I've only interacted with people who have done CPE in a hospital setting, but I do know that there are, there are some other options out there. Uh, not as many there's, you mostly see it in, in hospital settings. And uh, you have a mix of both clinical and educational uh, time. So it's 400 hours total. So you do 300 in the hospital, visiting patients, interacting with staff. And then you do 100 hours of education. And so that's didactics uh, and lectures, as well as interpersonal conversations with uh, a group, usually between four and seven students in each class. So there's, since you are, um, you know, an expert on teaching people how to uh, console and how to be good people, um, there's a lot of loss right now. Um, There's a lot of pain, suffering. The, uh, you know, the COVID numbers are going up again significantly, at least here in southeastern PA. And uh, I'm, I'm finding more and more people who have been affected by it and who are unsure about how to comfort each other. Um, what kind of advice would you give to just lay people in, in uh, what to say and what not to say when somebody is going through loss or trauma? I, I always err on the side of listening. I think often when we try to use words in those moments, we, we might lean towards cliche uh, and trying to sort of cover the intensity of the emotion. And I, I sometimes, I sometimes stay quiet. It feels like too long, but I think quiet and silence and reflection is a space where the other has, has the space to verbalize what they need to. And, uh, that's often my process. Uh, when I introduce myself to a patient or to a staff person, uh, I give space for them to, say the words to give voice to what they are suffering with. Sometimes I'll, I'll offer what I hear in the moment. I'll say that it sounds like you're angry. It sounds like you're frustrated. It sounds like you're grieving and they can correct me, which is sort of the beauty of just giving them one word to reflect on. And it I really want it to be patient, other person led, uh, and if I try to lead it, I think I'll I'll lead it down a direction that they may not want to go. So what's like, if you could t- tell our listeners, like in the five-minute CPE class we have yeah. here right now, don't say this. What shouldn't they say? Um, that this is happening for a reason. 
Oh, <laughs> thank God. Yes, that's the uh. worst. <laughs> yeah, the, when a patient tells me that, I will sit with them and help them move through that and make meaning of that phrase if that's something that's for them. But that's not something I ever want to put on another person. Thank uh, you. Yeah, it's... I've seen too many things that I don't understand the reason for. And so I... I can't ask somebody to to move into that direction. Yeah, I don't even really truly understand magnets, let alone like why good thing bad things happen to good right. people. You know, we uh, you saying that brought up something for me personally. Um, so tragically, five five and a half years ago, I guess it's been now. My stepmother took her life, mm-hmm. and as a way to you know just help console me. During the time afterwards, uh, one of my workout buddies talked about how um, it was all part of God's plan. And, uh, you know, I'm Christian, but I was irate for a long time. And I remember telling my dad that, and he actually talked, we're Episcopal, and he talked with his um, Episcopal priest at the time and, and mentioned that and told me that he just kind of said to him, he's like, is that actually how it works? And the our, uh, his priest was just like, no, that's not the way I understand it. And even mine have said that too. And, you know, you know, all my friends and stuff, but it just was very interesting to me that that is, you know, and that's what worked for him. But I remember afterwards telling other people that even if you believe that, like, if that's what you hold to never tell someone who's grieving that this is part of God's plan. So, did, you know, even if you know that person believes it, don't say it. Let them believe it themselves, but don't say it because mm-hmm. there's a good chance that they won't believe that. Or even if they have in the past, they won't feel that way at this moment. And it, it did not help at all. And I knew the guy was trying to be nice, mm-hmm. but it still was just like, don't say that to people. So especially in that situation. Right. So. Yeah. Mm. I think for people who have gone through intense grief, like I, I think about my own, you know, difficult situations, I've made a meaning of them looking back on the situation, but for somebody who's in the middle of that storm, in the middle of that crisis, they're not there yet. That's, that's Mm. far in the future. And I can't impose my meaning making on where they are in their moment. And so, you know, they have to get there and that's, that's not the stage that they're in at that point. Um, So I know it's coming from a place of wanting somebody to, to be in a new place, to be, to be healed already, but healing, is a journey and it, it is, you can't just use words to say you're there already. You're right. Right. So anyway, so I'm glad that you emphasize that not to say this is, this happened for a reason. So yeah, it's always bothered me. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's possible to teach people how to be compassionate or is that just something that you're born with? I think there are some things that make you uh, more comfortable in places where compassion is needed. But I think you can learn. I think there are techniques that help slow us down and give us space to really hear the other. Techniques that help us to slow down? Yeah, do I mean? think uh, compassion comes from, from pause, from actually sitting in the feelings and giving space for empathy. So if, if you aren't in a rush and you actually sit in the discomfort of somebody's anger or grief, uh, then you have space to really hear them. 
but it's, it's a long process. It's just, it doesn't happen quickly. Yeah. yeah. I encounter a lot of people who are angry with God, but have never given themselves the space to mm -hmm. admit it um, for fear of what that might entail once they've admitted it. And especially now um, where with uh, this global pandemic, um, which has just changed how everything works. <laughs> you know, every single one of us has been affected, which, you know, in some ways, typically when you're doing pastoral care, right? Like you, you have one person who's going through trauma and one person who's not. And the person who's not is then helping the person who is. But now we're all kind of in it together, trying to meet each other in our common anxiety and fear and whatever. Um, how has how has it changed for you being a chaplain during this time in a hospital, especially? It, uh, it has taken a, a lot more steps to get in the room, uh, than I used to have. So I, I am used to just sort of getting a list of referrals and going room to room and taking on the day, seeing 10, 20 patients and attending to their needs. Uh, now there is a lot more uh, reading of the chart, making sure that uh, is this patient someone I can go in and see? Are they in an isolation precaution or having a, a procedure that would aerosolize any kind of droplets? Uh, are the family present because we have visitor restrictions? So I can't just go into a room and see the person's family. I have to make phone calls, check in with the family, see what sort of rituals and blessings and conversations they would want to have with their loved one. Uh, sort of a two-part spiritual assessment of both calling family and then trying to reach out to a patient who may or may not be responsive. And, and then uh, there's a lot more staff care. Um, our staff are becoming family to our patients because they don't have loved ones coming in or entire families are coming in with the virus. And so, you know, husband and wife are on different floors, both receiving treatment. Mm. And so the person they would normally rely on is also sick. And so our nurses have stepped in and been that, that presence and that, that kindness to people who are isolated uh, in hospital rooms. And so each visit I have, I then come out and try to support the team members who are now acting as family. You mentioned before we started recording, uh, doing alternative forms of, of communication with people. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, we, we have uh, invested in a lot of technology, uh, and I'm sure we could use more, but you know, we're, we're doing what we can with the iPhones and iPads that we have. And we're doing uh, Zoom family meetings. We're doing uh, FaceTime, uh, you know, prayers and blessings. I had a birthday party for a 102-year-old uh, on an iPad with all of her family. Uh, and so, yeah, we're just as, as much as we can to connect people together uh, to be able to see their loved one. Um, and then when the technology isn't there, we still have people who don't have iPhones or tablets, they have flip phones and, you know, all they have is their voice. And so I'll go in and I'll hold a phone to somebody's ear so that they can at least hear their loved ones. And so it's, it's just sort of adapting to, uh, families not being able to come in families being at risk and not being feeling safe coming into the hospital. Um, mm -hmm. 
or a patient not being allowed to have visitors as, as much as they normally would. Yeah, that's been one of the uh, more heartbreaking parts of the pandemic of the things I've you know read. Thankfully, no one in my immediate family um, has had uh, has been infected with COVID nineteen. You know, I've just got friends who have and an extended family. But um, one of the things that I it that's been very tough to read is from the frontline you know stories from the frontline workers of having to be with you know, patients who have died because of this and who have had to die completely alone, right? Without any family. Um, it's just been so heartbreaking to hear that. Um, and I just can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. I've been, I've been very grateful that we have allowed visitation, uh, throughout. Like it's, it's certainly, you know, I'm used to people being pretty much camped out in a room, you know, somebody right. gets sick and yeah. the, the loved one is sleeping on the couch next to them. Uh, but you know, through this, it's more, you know, during important meetings at end of life at critical moments, but I'm so grateful when I see uh, a loved one in the room, just knowing that, that they're able to be with and, and process and grieve and support their loved one, uh, in person, uh, virtual helps, but it's, it's just not the same thing. So in your, uh, in your undergrad, you studied biology, right? Uh, what, what were you imagining your life trajectory would go? I, uh, was planning on being a doctor. Uh, it was, it was sort of an act of rebellion, uh, because I, I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be a missionary. I grew up in a conservative, uh, tradition that didn't, uh, ordain women. And so I had been told that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't become a, any kind of religious leader. And so I heard about medical missionaries and I was like, well, then that's my end. I'll, I'll be a doctor. And then I can like do some religious stuff on the side. Uh, and then I went to a school where I met some ordained women and I was like, Oh, okay. So I can, I can actually just go directly to the source and, uh, and get ordained and, and find a tradition. And then I found chaplaincy, which was like the, that perfect mix. But, uh, yeah, initially pre-med was sort of a, a way just to get into, into some sort of ministry role, uh, that wouldn't require me to marry a pastor because that, that was the other thing they told me. I had to marry a pastor and I was like, oh, I don't know. That seems to limit the pool. Oh, man. That's, that's <laughs> awful. You don't want to marry a pastor. There. I know a few good ones. Just for all of our listeners out there. That's... <laughs> so you may have already said this. What tradition are you or denomination, I guess, that are you ordained in? American Baptist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Very eclectic. Which is wild because I grew up American Baptist and the women in my church weren't even allowed to like teach boys that are over mm -hmm. 18. Like um, American Baptist is is kind of an eclectic group. Yeah, that's the joy of being a congregationalist is that there there are pockets everywhere who, uh, you know, we're all still brothers and sisters, but have some variety of uh, beliefs and uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm really thankful that you found that path that of. Uh, liberation of sorts because your uh, your spiritual gifts are 
are are too great to keep hidden under a bushel of the patriarchy. So thank God for some kinds yes. of Baptists. Um, so in uh, in thinking about how your trajectory was always towards ministry and the pre-med being a kind of excuse to do that, but still something that you loved and the the science of it all, something that you loved. Um, can you think of ways that your love of science, your understanding of science has informed the way that your faith has developed? Absolutely. I, I think I've always been in sort of a guess and check uh, mentality. And even in my spirituality, I, I have been curious about what uh, different traditions do and how they do them and why they do them. And so my spirituality has become very eclectic because I've had this desire to sort of try different things and see what I want to incorporate into my own spiritual tradition and what, uh, what I want to leave behind. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I just, I love the, the questioning of science that everything can be sort of studied and questioned and, researched. And so I apply that to my, my faith tradition as well, to keep asking the questions about what is this and why am I doing it? So in, in the scientific method, though, you can, you can measure, you can, uh, you can look at data and determine if, if your hypothesis is more correct that or not. Um, how do you do that in spirituality? Well, there's plenty. There's a lot of research that happens uh, in spiritual world. So I got to do research back when I was uh, in residency, when I was studying uh, CPE, and I got to do research on third-year medical students uh, trying a reflective model, sort of interfaith uh, model. And we tested them at the beginning uh, using uh, an empathy scale and different scales to, to measure depression and anxiety. And then at the end of the the time doing this reflective round, they did the study again and to see how their coping mechanisms changed. Got some anecdotal evidence about, you know, how these rounds supported them, helped them to learn, helped them to engage in their, their practice. And also saw that, you know, their empathy actually, there was like a change in their empathic responses to patients. And so there's studies like that. There's all sorts uh, across the country uh, you know, it's more about uh, people's you know, looking at scales to see people's feelings and expressions, and a lot of it can be more anecdotal. Uh, but it's it's still something that we're able to quantify uh, and and see a trajectory of of somebody's uh, processing of of difficult situations. So a lot of us have, um, and I know a lot of our listeners have gone through periods of deconstructing the the faith that they were handed. And I think that's probably healthy for everyone to do to some extent that, uh, you know, if you were raised with a certain set of beliefs, they have to become your own. So in order for them to become your own, you have to take them apart a little bit and reconfigure them in a way that, that makes sense to you. Um, that process can be terrifying mm -hmm. <laughs> to put it lightly um, not only because for many of us our 
our uh, faith or religious tradition is at the, the core of our being, but also the core of our, uh, our family ties and our community ties. And so this process of deconstruction and hopefully reconstruction um, is often fairly trauma-producing, which stops a lot of people from doing it in the first place. Um, would you have any any words of advice to people who are currently going through this sort of deconstructive process? Yeah, you're not alone. Like we, there are so many of us who who have gone through it, come through it multiple times. That uh, it it does feel really isolating. I know that when I've of my my most significant like deconstruction period was felt like all of my people were in my faith tradition and to step away from my my faith tradition would be to lose everyone I I loved uh, and feared that they would not respect me or you know want me around anymore uh, and you know there is some loss there are people that you will lose in that process but you don't you don't necessarily lose everyone and you certainly gain gain a sense of peace understanding uh and you get sort of i've gotten a new a new group uh as i've gone through deconstruction uh found that i've you know i am not i'm not alone in this and that there are many of us who are questioning some more vocally than others um but it yeah, I, I remember just the intense feeling of isolation uh, and the fear that there was nothing on the other side, that I was going to go from such certainty to just being floating around without anything to, to stand firm on. But strangely, like sort of embracing the mystery of, of everything has actually been a new foundation for me. Uh, and I, I kind of... I like it better, uh, but it, it can, it's still sort of rattling. Um, hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, but I, I think little. about it all the time now, which is that like the more, <laughs> the more, you know, the more you feel like you don't know anything. And I feel like the more I've dug deeper into, you know, faith and mystery, the more I feel like, yeah, I don't really grasp much fully. But I think that's okay, and I feel I feel a little more secure in that. Huh. Yeah, the converse is true as well. That the people who are most confident in their knowledge are the people who know the least, mm-hmm. <laughs> or are the least competent in it. Yeah. So the more you feel like an imposter, the more likely it is that you belong. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't feel like an imposter in some way, then maybe you actually don't belong. Right. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. You, you belong. You belong. You have a place here. <laughs> but I always find that in, the way you just described it, Casey, you know, the mystery of everything um, can be uh, very exciting, but also uh, tough, right, to admit that. Mm-hmm. I have found through my spiritual journey over the past several years that I tend to struggle more with people who are very certain or who believe that they are certain in things. Um, And 
I, I have a higher level of confidence in the conversation with people who are also struggling, mm-hmm. right? Who are, who have questions, who are mysterious and not as who, you know, who, um, kind of embrace the, the mystery of things. Um, it's not that I feel like I know more. I just feel more comfortable in those conversations than with individuals who are certain, no, this is the way it is. And, um, especially those who say this is the way it is according to this particular part of scripture, right? This single verse and, you know, a very, very long document. Um, this is, this is the way it is. I'm like, well, what about all the other verses? Um, you know, and, and well, no, no, this is the one that counts. Okay. Okay. Um, and so I, being that I don't have a very strong, uh, theological background, um, and as an academic, especially that it, it, I've noticed that at times I will back down more from those conversations and maybe feel less confident in the conversation, if that makes sense. And I think it's partly because I just have been attacked a lot in social media by people I don't know Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, finally just wears on you. So. Yeah. I think that's, it's one of the the struggles partially of, of social media that like we connect with so many people, but we don't connect deeply Right. with those people. And so we're in a, you know, and there's plenty of people that I talk to that I, I disagree with and I love them, but you know, mm-hmm. we have come from different perspectives, but at least I'm able to sit down with them and say, you know, this conversation is, is done. I think we need to pause. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, it feels like you can't quite do that unless you like end the comments on a thread and, uh, it just doesn't get to that personal level. Right. Uh, with all the vast communication that we have. And then a lot of times what will that, what will happen is, is that people will say, Oh, well being that you're either ending the conversation or muting people or blocking people or unfriending that you're just putting yourself in a bubble, Hmm. Um, you know, and you're just like-minded, like-minded, which I, you know, used to, that used to bother me too, but I've started recently as, as you just mentioned, Casey, that personal connection that if I'm in, you know, a one-on-one conversation or with a group of people. And I feel like there's a relationship there that has become toxic. I tend to choose not to be with that person, right? Because it's not good for me, my mental health and my well-being of to be around people that I believe are toxic. Um, that doesn't mean that I can't be around people that I disagree with. It just means that if it has been elevated to that toxic level. So I've now embraced that. I'm going to do the same thing when it comes to things like social media. If it is elevated to the point of a toxic conversation and it continues that route, then I just will no longer be friends with that person because yeah. it's not, I just, you know, if I need to protect my own mental well-being. So if yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And it's, you know, even like when I'm doing chaplaincy, there are times where I'm in a situation where I know I'm not helping the situation anymore mm-hmm. um, and I need to step away. And so it's, it's for both. I think boundaries, boundaries protect you, but they also protect the other person. And that's something that I've had to like relearn in therapy over and over again. Um, because like there are times where I'm sitting with a patient who is having an episode, whether it's uh, a chemical imbalance or, you know, they're confused because they've been in the hospital for 60 days and they see me and they're scared. They don't know who I am. They don't know why I'm there. If I just stay there in that room, and just keep forcing my presence on them, that's going to elevate their anxiety. And then they'll be mm-hmm. afraid of chaplains for the rest of their lives. And so to read oh, the yeah. room and to know 
you know, this, this is not going to help them at this moment. There's a block, whatever that block is, ideological or chemical or uh, psychological, I'm going to put a pause on this and come back when it's safe for both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Because ultimately, I love all of these people. I love my friends and my family and people from my, my old life and from my new life. And this boundary protects us both. Yeah, I like that perspective. So I had a, a, a question that was only tangentially related, um, but something that I have dealt with, um, I don't want to say struggled with, but um, there are lots of cases where you are with someone in a hospital who is unresponsive, mm. who is not able to speak back, you know, whether they be intubated or just in a coma of some kind. And when you're visiting with them, there can be this feeling of, why am I even here? Does my presence matter if this person's not even awake? Is it possible to provide care to someone who is not uh, not responsive? Is there is there value for a person in being with a loved one who is not able to respond back to them? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, we don't get the reports back from the patients who remain in that state or who pass away from that, from that place of being, you know, sedated, intubated, unresponsive. But there are plenty of people who, who do turn a corner, uh, and come out and they have, I have heard stories where they've said they knew that the, uh, environmental services person who was cleaning their room was there because they would hum beautiful songs and they Hmm. just felt a sense of peace whenever a certain, uh, a certain staff person was in the room. There have been people who have heard things. It's not as often that they hear you know, full sentences and remember every conversation, but they get the sense. Like There's sort of this beyond words connection that people feel. And even if they come out and don't remember anything, the day that I go in there and I see that person out of bed and sitting up in a chair working with physical therapy. And I say, I've been visiting you every day for the past 60 days. There is this, the the patient is so grateful to know that they weren't alone to know someone was there and it makes an impact on the staff and on the family. Uh, The number of times that I've been with a patient who uh, is in that state and then a a loved one uh, walks in the room and they're like, Oh, what are you doing here? And I'm just, I'm just sitting with your, your loved one. And there's a sense of peace, just knowing they're not going through this by themselves and that we see them as a person. They're not just a body. They're not just an organ system that we're treating. This is a a whole person uh, that has likes and dislikes and wants to watch the Eagles on TV and wants me to read the paper to them. (laughs) Uh, And I can provide that sense of normalcy in the midst of something that is completely out of the normal for that family. It sounds like a lot of what I'm hearing from you today um, to practice my chaplain speak <laughs> is a lot of what, uh, what you do. Um, I don't know if this is what you know, the job entails or you as a human being is helping people to feel that they are not alone. Um, I've heard that theme come up a few times. Um, and we all feel a little bit alone right now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the, we, a lot of us have Zoom fatigue. Uh, 
we realize that there's a value to the uh, to the online communication, but it's just still feels kind of cheaper mm-hmm. than uh, than being in person. Um, is there? Have you found any? Anything helpful for people in these days, especially heading into this winter when I imagine a lot of us will have to go back into some form of lockdown? Um, What are some ways that we can feel less alone? I think think this is space for creativity, for us to find new rituals uh, so that we... I'm a big fan of ritual. Like anytime I can set up an altar space or create a new prayer or a new blessing, that's, that's where I feel alive. Um, and working at the hospital, uh, we've had a few different, uh, practices that I think helped us all feel like we weren't alone in it. So they, there was writing on the ground in chalk saying, you know, we love you. We support you. You're not alone. Your guys are heroes. Uh, and there were people painted rocks with like inspirational phrases and left it there. And then uh, I put up this tree in the meditation room chapel space. Uh, and I called it the weeping willow. And I said, if you feel like you're grieving something, anything, a life, a transformation uh, in your life, in your job, in your family system, uh, add a ribbon to the tree and, you know, see uh, within a couple of days, the tree was full with Hmm. all of these ribbons. And I've had to replenish the ribbons multiple times. And every time I walk in there and I see these like hundreds of ribbons on this little tree, I think, oh my gosh, we are so, so much closer than we are distant. Um, and so as much as we can engage in some sort of physical, uh, ritual to feel close, I think that's the areas that I want to continue to sort of meditate on and, and think of creative ways, um, cause we're doing as much as we can technologically. There's, there's only so many little yeah. screens we can use. Um, and so I think something about that physical movement and, uh, engagement in our bodies helps to feel less alone, even if it's one person at a time adding a ribbon to a tree. That reminds me of the ritual that that we had at uh, at Jefferson mm-hmm. in Philly. That anytime when when we were in our uh, CPE program, anytime one of our patients died, we would take a ribbon and go up to the front to a wreath and uh, speak the patient's name and say a few words about them and tie it to the wreath. Um, and even though we probably had only met them once, uh, maybe twice, um, some of us a few times, cause we only did it once a week. Um, we would still speak their name and, uh, tell their story and tie it to the wreath. And then at the end of the year, they had a, a ceremony at the, at the hospital for all of the families who lost someone there and brought out the wreath and told the stories. And it was a, it's always a really healing time to have a ritual Mm -hmm. that you can rely on. Um, I'm really interested in hearing more about your altar spaces. Um, What makes a good altar? I think uh, allowing it to change, allowing it to be different based on the season um, and reflect the needs of the community. 
So we, we don't have like set chapel time, like some church, some uh, hospitals have actual chapel services and we haven't had the number of uh, staff who are able to come down for a service. And so instead we've just sort of listened to the need of the hospital. And so one summer when we had a lot of um, acts of violence in our community, we did a service uh, for peace and for those affected, particularly by gun violence. Mm. Um, we, we have done services depending on, you know, when a staff person uh, passes away, uh, you know, to, to help heal the, the community that worked with that person. Uh, sometimes it's just a simple candle. I light a candle when somebody uh, donates their organs and it's a green candle to indicate, uh, you know, the gift of life that they were able to give to others. Uh, and sometimes it's more interactive, like tying a ribbon or adding a, a prayer to a, a display of some sort. Um, but I think that that space needs to move with the community, with what they are crying out for and give them space to, to physically connect with uh, something bigger than themselves. Do you have any altar spaces at home? Not right now. Well, we just moved in. Well, just moved in. We moved in like four months ago, but it's four months is very different. In yeah, pandemic it's a pandemic <laughs> and you have a yeah. baby. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but I have my meditation pillow. I have a couple of my little like altar space things out and about. And, uh, you know, as time moves, it's, it will, it will take shape more. So like if one, if one of our listeners is hearing this and thinks, I, having a little sacred corner in my house would be really healing if I have to be stuck in my home again. What, uh, what sorts of things should they mm. buy? I love candles. Uh, I think light is a really helpful uh, way for me to engage. Uh, so a candle, whether, you know, if you're allowed to light candles or have a little electric one, electric works just fine. Um, I think I like having something physical, um, so like I have a, a sand, uh, space to sit and, and move the sand around and make, make designs and center myself. I use a lot of coloring and art materials. Uh, I'm, I've been off of journaling for a while. I think I've been ruminating too much. And so I took a, I took a break from journaling, but I love, I love being able to engage with my body. And so... Mm-hmm. I think there's something about whether it's your closet or an office or like a corner of the room, it has just to make it different from everything else that you have to sit differently, be differently, uh, to reset one's mind. I'm, I'm in a new space, uh, and this space is set apart, even if there is no wall around it. Mm-hmm. Get yourself a beanbag chair and a little, a little table with a candle. There you and- go. As long as that's your place, then you're good to go. Or if you can find one of those inflatable chairs that everyone had in the <laughs> 90s, yes. that would be great. Bring too. them back. Remember those ridiculous things? Bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Casey, as we are nearing the end, I, uh, I want to ask you a question that I've asked everyone so far. And you can take all the time you need to answer it. But what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? I think I wish everybody knew that they were, they were needed in this world, that they have a part to play and their, their presence just being here 
means something to someone else. And uh, I wish, <laughs> I just wish people really believed it. I think, I think sometimes we get caught up in what we do and thinking that it's, it's just what we provide. Um, you know, my job, my caring for my family, uh, paying taxes or something that it's just some physical thing that I, I have to do to keep this world running. But it's your very presence means something uh, to this world uh, and that you are valuable just for being you, which sort of sounds Mr. Rogersy, but uh, I think I just wish people could, I wish I could sit in that feeling of knowing that I belong here and I am valued just for being here. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Mr. Roger, Rogers E is fine. Well, St. Rogers is always welcome on this Beautiful. podcast. And Casey, I want you to know that you have made this a special day just because you were here. I think I misquoted mm, it's that. It's still beautiful. But, mm-hmm. It's true. And your presence has, has been important in my own life. Um, and so I thank you for being here with us um, in this virtual space. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> and for spending the past 45 minutes uh, sharing your heart and your life and the work that you're doing. And as we enter into this winter, I pray that your work be blessed and effective and uh, that that the work that you have been given to do is uh, is is met with receptivity mm. and that more people know that they are not alone and that they matter um, and so thank you thank you <laughs> thank you